Hello and welcome to Down with the Patriarchy. I'm Ben Richards. And I'm Elia Jeyo. He's as white and male as they come. And she, well, she isn't. But together, we're hoping to uncover those marginalised composers we don't know so well. That's right. So, Ben, I'm going to gloss over the fact that we are on our 10th episode. Yes. Because today we've got a very exciting guest. We are joined by the Chief Executive of the City of London Symphonia, a self-proclaimed failed trumpeter and composer, mostly failed conductor, semi-failed, semi-pro singer. But I don't think you can go wrong with being the chief exec of City of London Symphonia. So, Matthew Swan, hello. Welcome. <laughs> hello, thanks for having me on. I'm a bit nervous. <laughs> oh, don't be nervous at all. We're a couple of university students who like to have a chat about music. <laughs> but yeah, we're so glad to have you here for our 10th episode. We're a new little podcast, but we're, we're loving getting people on to chat with us. Good. Yeah, very excited to be here. In today's episode, we thought we'd go back to a chat that we did briefly touch on in our chat with Dr. Dan Elphick in our, it was like our third episode or yeah, something, episode. way back. Yeah. Yeah. And we did chat about the canon and how it was formed. But we're kind of going to be talking about the canon in its more modern sense today with mm. Matthew Swan. I suppose the, the first thing to ask, Matthew, is in your work with the City of London, Savonia, how are you grappling with this issue of the canon and programming? And what do you see as the sort of challenges for a contemporary ensemble in programming canonic music and non-canonic music? And how do you allow your audience to find music that you think that they should be listening to? Wow, that's, that covers like everything, only one question, so thanks, thanks for that, Ben. Yeah, um, so yeah, just, yeah. Just explain how you do your job. Yeah, if you just, yeah. That would be really helpful. Really, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I, well, the, the canon's a funny thing, isn't it? I mean, yeah. because we, we, the three of us met at various online sessions that Rebecca Miller uh, yes. put together the yeah. um, uh, record of the conductor and programmer and curator and all the rest of it. And it, it was, it was. I think this 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 conversation we're having now came from the fact that I said, "Who decided what the canon was?" Yeah, I said, "Yeah." I don't, I don't know anybody else that did. And I think it, it goes back to this argument that there is nothing wrong with. In fact, there's lots that is absolutely right with uh, Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, Haydn, Handel, Mahler, Wagner, Benjamin Britten, all the rest of it. But the the idea that there is this kind of fixed set in aspect menu of dead white males that that we we all program and play Mm. and anything else beyond that is a kind of is this sort of weird exotic aberration is i think is complete nonsense that the canon changes all the time if you go back and you look at proms programs from the 20s and 30s there's composers there that we just don't touch nowadays but they were hugely popular in their day um you know they sort of go back to 18th century vienna and you know saliero is probably more popular than Mozart yeah um uh and you know I think I gave the example in one of the sessions I was talking to you to about about Benjamin Britten who's gone from being the kind of you know almost slightly the entente terrible of of British music in the 50s and early 60s but certainly someone who was connected with the establishment and and wrote the big national occasions to becoming this weird exoticism that, that didn't really get done much and then suddenly in the last sort of 10 20 years 
people are doing Benjamin Britten. I mean, you can't go far across Europe without sort of tripping over productions of Peter Grimes and Billy Budd. Yeah. And rightly so, you know, he's one of our greatest composers and, and a queer icon as well. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the full C interlude in Peter Grimes has become a kind of like, oh, we, we need something vaguely 20th century in the concerto slot, but it isn't a concerto. I'll stick four C interludes in. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's those sort of things. And that's before we even get to the issue of composers from underrepresented groups. Mm. Uh, and, you know, both contemporary um, female and black and ethnic diverse composers and disabled composers and neurodiverse composers, let alone the historical ones. And it's, you know, and Ben, you mentioned, sorry, I'm giving, you, you asked me a complicated question, so I'm giving you a complicated one. No, no, stop yeah, talking in a minute. And then you start looking at, okay, in, in the, the sort of, you know, the few days leading up to this, I was looking at um, a lot of black jazz musicians in, from in the 50s. Mm. People like J.J. Johnson, Quincy Jones, Duke Ellington, mm. Nina Simone. Yeah. Are they, don't, uh, uh, should we pigeonhole them as jazz musicians? Actually, they were increasingly coming towards classical music, this kind of third stream of jazz, mm. which touched on both. You know, should that be part of the canon? I would argue it was. I mean, Nina Simone wanted to be a classical musician. Yeah. yeah. And was prevented from doing so because the Curtis Institute allegedly um, didn't let her in because of her, her race. So, yeah. yeah. There you go. That's, That's, is, is that everything solved? <laughs> to be fair, actually, that last point you just made there, I was thinking about this earlier and I was trying to think about, about how we interact with the canon and how classical music interacts with the music world as a whole in the 21st century. And you're talking about people like, you know, Duke Ellington wanting to be classical composers. I was thinking about, I suppose, the most contemporary example I could think of was Jacob Collier. Re I realised that although everything I've heard from him in terms of his output, I wouldn't necessarily classify as quote-unquote classical music. But if I were to, uh, if someone were to ask me what he was, I would probably say he was a classical musician, in a sense. Yeah. I'm trying to work out why that was. Do, do, you think, do you think there's an element of education there, the fact that he understands music from an analytical perspective in a way that perhaps many other people in different genres perhaps don't and don't need to? It's funnily enough, my wife just bought tickets to Jacob Collier today for us to oh. take our oh. eldest next next June, which I'm very much looking forward to. I think he's incredible. Yeah, so he's it, I, I don't know huge amounts about him. I I I inadvertently end up listening to a lot of Jacob Collier because my sixteen year old plays a lot of Jacob Collier quite loudly. Yeah, so I I mean clearly he's had a classical training. Yeah. Okay, so I, I, this is no offence to university courses, music conservatoires. Uh, I have done both. Yeah. But I, I do think that certainly in terms of compositional output, we have been guilty in the second half of the 20, 20th century and the 21st century of the academicization of comp classical composition. Yeah. Yes. Like. It stops yes. becoming a thing that musicians do and become a very specialist skill I remember, I won't say whether it was at my undergraduate degree or my postgraduate, I, I did composition as a second study. And I remember putting a piece in front of one person who was very much from that sort of Cambridge New Complexity School right. that mm. was my composition tutor. And he said, why have you done this in this section? And I said, because it sounded like the right thing to do. And he went, well, maybe, but it doesn't make much academic sense, does it? But that's not why I'm writing the music. No, that's not why <laughs> And I, I, that was one of the reasons why I ran away from the circus for a few years. I just thought, I don't want any part of yeah. Um, I, I, I Yeah, I mean, J Jacob Collier is probably a very good example, as is Duke Ellington. 
as is Mozart, actually, of someone that never had that formal training in the sense of a, an institution that, that kind of sat down and said, this is how you write a fugue. Those skills are important. If you want to write a fugue, you know, you, you, you need to sit down and spend time with Bach, obviously. Mm. Um, but yeah, we've, 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 we've kind of, we've, we've gone down a bit of a rabbit hole. And I think that's, that's part of, I mean, it, my, my understanding of this podcast is it's supposed to kind of bust lots of myths about composing as this sort of white male cisgendered heteronormative yep. thing. Mm. Um, and I, but I do think that's, that's part of it because, you know, white male cisgendered heteronormative people tend to be drawn towards those kind of structures of power. Um, whereas, you know, a lot of the people we're talking about perhaps thrive in a slightly different environment. I don't know. No, no I, I do know, but I'm, I'm hedging. I'm, I'm sounding apologetic where I have no need to sound apologetic. Is that all that makes yeah. sense? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's such a good point. I actually was talking to one of my friends about this the other day. Um, we were talking about how most dancers in all forms of dance, bit jazz, modern, musical theatre, all start off as ballerinas. They all have the balletic training from a young age because it's just a, a technical thing. Yeah. So, like you were saying about Nina Simone, always wanted to be a classical singer. It just it reminds me a classical me very... composer and a classical gen- yeah, a classical yeah. pianist. She she only sang because the the owner of the casino or the bar she was playing in Atlantic City said, "I'll give you more money if you sing as well as well as play." Oh, right. Well, there you go. Honestly, when I think of Nina Simone, the first thing I kind of associate her with is "I Love You, Porgy," and that's that's just what I think of. And obviously, Gershwin is a kind of crossover composer, but. Also, it made me think of, I don't suppose anyone watched Britain's Got Talent about five years ago. It was probably a while ago. A fantastic pianist, composer, producer called Tokyo Myers was on. And he was a person of colour with fantastic dreadlocks all tied up on top of his head. And he came in and played a very beautiful rendition of Fur Elise or something, which, of course, the audience loved because they love hearing things that they know. And then... Tokyo then launched into this incredible kind of dubstep version of it. And he was trained at the Royal College of Music. I think he had a scholarship and wouldn't have been able to study there without it. And I went to see him at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival a few years ago. And I took my grandma with me because I thought, she'll love this. She's a classically trained pianist herself. And I thought, she's going to love this. And then she'll absolutely hate it. And she was trapped in this really low-ceilinged room with noise and bodies. And it's the most COVID-unsecure thing you could possibly imagine. (laughs) And it was incredible. And it was that crossover between canonic music, which people know and love, and something entirely new that brought an entire new generation into classical music that I loved. Sorry, that was really long-winded, but... It, it just my train of thought carried me there. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the joy of podcasts. You can be a bit long-winded. Yeah, you don't have an editor <laughs> saying stop talking. Exactly. <laughs> We've also got this situation at the moment where people are just so comfortable listening to the Bachs and the Beethovens and the Mozarts, mm. and people know what they like. And I'd quite like to get onto something about the Hall of Fame or something like that in a in a few minutes, but. Audiences love what they're comfortable with. And we were saying how festivals like the proms do their bit to draw all forms of music in. You've got classical music and they bring jazz in, the 
elements of pop that come into it. It's not just about classical music. And that does add some kind of diversity. What are your thoughts? I think that you touched on another important subject. This... You know, lots lots of people do this, it's, and it's, I'm not suggesting that proms do it at all. And I've, I've got some very good mm. friends there, um, but I think there is a tendency for a lot of organisations in classical music to approach artists from different music genres, who are very often artists from underrepresented backgrounds, mm. and say, "We want you to do this specific thing. We want we want you as a as a round peg to fit the square yeah. hole." And therefore, we have then done the box ticking exercise and we can do a bit of virtue signalling and we're fine. We're not the racists because we engaged artist XYZ to work yeah. with repertoire A, B and C. And it's, I feel that it's the wrong way round. And I think this is something that I, I, I hope we have done at City London Symphonia and, and I hope that the artists that we've, we've engaged with would, would say this. But I think what we need to start doing more is going to these artists, and say, whether they're female artists or, or black and ethnic diverse or neurodivergent or whatever, and say, what is it that you want to realise? What, what, what creative vision have you got? Um, and the same actually with our own musicians in the orchestra, rather than sit down, shut up, play these notes, play them in the right order and rehearse quickly, please, because we've not got a lot of money. Yeah. You know, what do they want to do as creative <clears throat> artists? Because most, I mean, certainly orchestral musicians in this country are not treated as creative artists. They are treated as incredibly proficient technical yeah. artisans who produce the same thing over and over again. So, you know, in going to someone like a, a Genevieve Lacey or a Roderick Williams or a Shu Data or a, a Sam Lee, you know, what, what is it that you want to, to bring to City of London Symphony? What can we help you achieve? Because that's much more interesting for me. Sitting down and sort of doing that kind of male ego programming, like, oh, I, I know Mozart catalogue numbers better than you do, and I can remember every single nickname to every single Haydn symphony. is just really <laughs> boring. And, yeah, people do want to listen to Mozart and Haydn and Bach and Beethoven, and so do I. You know, in the thing that you sent earlier, my, my kind of Desert Island one disc was the Bart B minor Yeah. Because yeah. it's got almost everything in it. Um, but... I want to listen to these other things as well. Um, and quite often, I think, you know, when you've worked with a, a Gwilym Simcock or a Cleveland Watkiss or a, or a you know, a Genevieve or a Cheryl Francis Hode or whatever, then coming back to this this core canon, for want of a better phrase, with fresher eyes actually is, is quite good. It stops it being so kind of sane all the time. No, I love that. I love the idea of kind of flipping everything on its head. That's what Ben and I are trying to do a bit more of um, yeah. in our in our and in our lives really yeah I mean to look at some of the big institutions that in, in classical music in this country I am definitely not going to name names but quite often they're not run by people they're run by the structure yeah, yeah. so it's making any kind of change is really really difficult because the structure serves the people that yeah. are there and they're big beer moss and so therefore you, you go and work with a, a female composer or a black composer or, or someone from a different from a different music genre it's about get, having to get that artist to fit within your structure, not saying, what can, you, what can we help you to, to bring? You're the artist, for goodness yeah. sake. You know. I think, actually, one of the things that just sprung to mind for me is that at Holloway at the moment, me and Ellie are really lucky that the choir's got its first composer in residence, Nathan Dearden, who's a contemporary... I'm not sure whether he labels himself as a queer composer, but, I mean, you know, he, you know that is what he is. And what's really interesting about that 
collaboration, what I'm the impression I'm getting is that exactly what you're saying here, that there's a sense of, right, what do you want to do? How can this be a situation where it's a dialogue and it's not just, we want you to do this and then kind of scuttle away um, and kind of let's get on with it. And yeah. to the point where we, we were, he'd written a piece for us that we performed, we were rehearsed the other day and he came in and listened to it and now he's taken it away and completely changed it. And it's like a sort of organic process of composition where we're kind of providing that sort of immediate audio imprint for him as a composer but you see that's that's really interesting ben and this this is something that affects all creatives in classical music whatever background whatever identity yeah. they've got we are absolutely am i allowed to yes, swear on this podcast absolutely yeah <laughs> we are absolutely fucking terrible in classical music at research and development yeah. and when i say fucking terrible i mean we just don't do it and if you if you look at the world of film or theatre or, or literature even or, or visual art, every big new project comes with a time to research and development stuff. And you're presenting Nathan bringing you a work, you singing it, and then him going away and changing it like it's it, it's an unusual thing. And it is an unusual thing in classical music, no. but it shouldn't be. Yeah. It should be a perfectly normal thing to do. You know, composers historically have gone away and you know, sort of written stuff and it's not worked in the first performance, so they've tweaked it and all the rest of it because they weren't under the spotlight of everything being on, the, on mm. YouTube and everything being reviewed all the time and all the rest of this sort of stuff. And I have a theory that part of the reason that historically we don't have, well, part the main reason historically we don't have uh, female and um, black and ethnic diverse composers in, in the canon, he says with doing quotation marks in the air, mm. is because of rank misogyny and racism. But part of the barrier to do with that is the fact that these individuals were never allowed to fail. Yes. And if yeah. you if you are a composer from a sort of traditional background in the last mm. 70 years, you've gone to a school or a music service that had very, very good music. You've done that very sort of cisgendered male thing of like, I want to be a composer, so I'm just going to will it into existence and I'm going to write stuff. And I'll get it wrong. And someone will say, oh, it doesn't matter. It was a really good effort. Why do you try this? But a, a, a woman or a black composer comes along. And if it's not perfect straight away, it's, well, it's because they're a woman or because they mm. are from this background or whatever. And I do, I, I have no academic research to back that up whatsoever. But I am absolutely convinced that it's a hypothesis that is true. Um, which I realise is a very white male cisgender technological thing to say. No, I, it's my I hypothesis, agree. therefore yeah. it's true. But... But, I, I think that's true, and black women here is completely supporting that. So actually, don't worry think, about that. Think, no, think, <laughs> okay, well, good. Thank you. About it, from what we've from what we've looked at, you know, you think about Samuel Coleridge Taylor, for example. He was revered for for one particular work, and then after that, things just sort of started to fall away for him. And um, he had this great success, and then subsequent compositions were sort of not received so warmly. And then you you wonder why he's not as well known as he could be. And you think, well, that 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 might mm. be it. And also, yeah. I find as well is that when you see the sort of classical, classic way these days, the pedestrian way, I think of of programming new music is to stick the commission in at the opening of a program which is which has got a big white cisgendered symphony or concerto or something in afterwards, which is why people have, which is what which is what bringing bring the people in. And the problem with those is that they get they get the commission. They get paid. They they write the piece of music. It gets performed. They get their round of applause, and then often we never see that piece ever again. And, and that's the start and the end. Yeah. Then there's there's no relationship. There's no relationship no, with the ensemble. They are they are commissioned through their publisher. 
They write this thing. It's given half an hour to rehearse at the end of probably quite a stressful rehearsal situation and shoved in in the contemporary music sandwich slot. You know, the sort of thing between, well, if don't put it in the second half because people are leaving at the interval. So stick it right at the end of the first half when no one can leave or right at the beginning. But we're not building relationships. And also you mentioned that thing about someone Corrid Taylor being well-known for one particular piece. Let's be honest, not all of every composer, Samuel Coleridge Taylor included composers, uh, uh, not every composer's output is uniformly brilliant. And I think that, you know, female and black composers are, are justly sort of attacked because of that. Have you listened to the Beethoven choral Fantasia? It's or the um, Wellington Zeke, which is you know, also awful. Oh, just <laughs> yeah. dire. And all that stuff last year about we're going to perform every single piece of Beethoven. I can't remember which orchestra it was. I, like, really? I was going to Why ask you. Why would you do that? I was going a to ask you whether or not one of the saving graces of COVID was that we didn't have to spend a year prattling on about Beethoven for 12 months. Um, I thought we might, I thought that perhaps that was, I mean, I love Beethoven in, you know, in, in bits of it, but I've, I was quite glad that we didn't spend an entire year you know, go, going, being forced to go to concerts that, <laughs> that featured his and only his music, you know. I was actually just thinking about this. We did one concert at St John Smith Square we last year. Nine, yeah. Of yeah, we did Beethoven Nine, and actually we've got a CD of that coming out in a few days. <laughs> Keep your ears peeled. Bad time we did um, Anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oops, don't tell Rupert. Uh, but in the first half of it was this piece called Number Five, oh, Number God. Five, oh. which was <laughs> a good Sorry. reaction. But it was based around Beethoven and. When it was performed, I remember everyone just kind of being like, oh, isn't, all right, let's, isn't that also part get, of the problem? That, you know, you're asking a contemporary composer, so right, what we want you to do is we want you to, to do something you know, new with something that's already been done. And so therefore, we're already removing the agency from, from, you know, we're not giving you the reins. We're sort of going, well, you're obviously not as good as Beethoven, but why don't you do your best to kind of reinvent this wheel? for us in the contemporary. I just think, isn't that just a bit, I mean, sometimes I suppose it could be quite interesting, but I find that that's just a little bit patronising, if nothing else. I, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with, with asking a composer to write no. a specific brief. Um, I, I think that quite often that, that has happened all the way through history. I think that the issue comes when, and I, I don't know this current situation, so I, I can't comment on whether that happened or not. I think the issue comes where it's like, oh, well, let's get that composer because they represent this background to do this thing yeah. that we want them to do, mm-hmm. rather than finding the right person musically from whatever background they came from. By the way, which includes doing a thorough search to make sure you are including lots of people from underrepresented groups yeah. in that search, because that's how you get the highest possible quality by having the biggest possible talent yeah. pool, by the way. Um, so I'm not saying, by the way, to you two, I'm saying, by the way, to anyone who's <laughs> sort of going, oh, but it's all about quality. No, quality includes going to the biggest talent pool, shut up, mm. it's a ridiculous argument. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, But yeah, it's it's when thought doesn't go into stuff like that. We, we, need, we need a fanfare to open this new building or whatever, this new arts complex. Okay, let's, let's go to the uh, disabled female composer that writes really kind of folk-influenced, um, esoteric uh, electronica. Um, not not because we want an esoteric electronica folk influence fanfare, but because she's yeah. female and disabled. Mm. It's just you know, come on, you know, there's there's another composer out there that will do a much better job, and you're doing her a massive disservice yeah. by sort of mm. making that that mismatch. Let's do your research and development, people. Spend money on research and development. 
Oh, sorry. Absolutely. No, I that I completely agree. It's that idea of box ticking. Yeah. And there are just so many arguments all over all the social media platforms that are just like, oh, but it should just be the best person for the job. It doesn't matter what their gender is. But, oh, that bothers me. Well, no, that was so it, it, it's They're missing half the argument. If exactly. that really is the argument they want to play, no, it doesn't matter what gender the person is. But part of making sure you get the right person is going to the widest possible talent pool. And at the moment, we do not have the widest possible talent pool in classical music because we're missing so many people out because they don't see enough people that look like you, Ellie, for yeah. example. And, yeah. and it's, it's, such a, it's such a deeply rooted problem, isn't it? Because you say, well, no black musician or no queer musician applied. Well, then you need the next question to truly be, well, why? Have they had the appropriate support their youth to encourage their talent have they seen other people uh, that look like them in the industry do they feel that the even that, that it's a safe space in for which they can in which they can express themselves freely if you, if you just say well they're, they're not applying so it's not really our problem then you're basically just by dis, you know by dismissing it you're effectively just allowing this kind of you're perpetuating, you're perpetuating the head it you, well, you, you are, you, you're you kicking it down the, yeah. the talent pipeline, effectively. You're saying it's not our fault, it's the fault of the conservatoires. And then the conservatoires say, well, it's not our fault, it's the fault of the music yeah. services in the schools. And then they all sort of say, well, it's it's the fault of, you know, government not having enough funding. And government turn around and say, what if you were a more diverse yeah. sector, we'd give you more money? So yeah. it just sends a bit, it's, it's, it's everyone's responsibility. Just, just do mm. something, you know, for goodness sake, and make sure it actually properly represents what the artists you're engaging with want to do and not you sort of saying, we've done it now, thank you very much, can we have some money, please, Arts Council of England, Stroke Creative Scotland, Stroke yeah. Arts Council of Wales, um, and the Northern <laughs> Irish people. Um, you know, it's it's just, uh, yeah. just nonsense, quite frankly. Oh, that was brilliant. Very cathartic. <laughs> I, I the Arts Council of Northern like, Ireland, I, I do know that, I do know that. I could just listen to these conversations all day. Sorry if I'm not doing very much talking. It's just That's so interesting. Do you have any thoughts about I mentioned it briefly earlier about Hall of Fame and where we keep these composers who always end up in the mm. same top 10 in this glass box and we just shuffle around the order. Do you have any thoughts about the Hall of Fame and what we can do to kind of break it or if it's a good idea? Or It's that classic yeah. term thing, isn't it? Yeah. Other, other radio stations, when they do a top 10 every year. Yeah. And I think for a number of years on the trot, yeah. Lark Ascending yeah, is yeah. always at the top. I mean, yeah. the Lark Ascending is, yeah. is a brilliant piece of music. Mm. It's completely beautiful. Um, and unusually, it's not been spoiled by massive over-familiarity, mm. at least not to my ears. Mm. Um, but part of the reason it's popular, it's, it's a fantastic piece of music, part of the reason it's popular is because it is yeah. familiar. And therefore, yeah. it's comforting and it's 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 safe. Um, you know, even I, I'm one of his greatest proponents, but I, even I would admit it's not exactly you know sort of breaking down any barriers in terms of you know the sort of tonal world of um, early 20th century mm. English music. Um, but it's very very familiar. Um, you know, at the Beethoven Nine is very very familiar, uh, yeah. and actually weird. Beethoven, like, if you think about it, think of the opening of the last movement. I mean, that's just an incredible incredible cacophony of, of, yeah. of lunacy and then you guys have sung it so have i you come in and you sing it it's an exhausting sing it's like sort of being punched yeah. in the larynx for 10 minutes <laughs> but it's hugely <laughs> popular why because it's done yeah. lots and lots and lots and people know it well 
Um, and I think the only way we can change this is by saying, right, okay, someone like me, I am going to program more Hollis Taylor. I am going to program more Cheryl Francis Hode. I'm going to program more Ample Scoose. I'm going to work more with Shimic Data. I'm going to work more with Genevieve Lacey, all of these people. And their, their music and their way of working becomes more and more and more familiar. Um, and it's, I think the charge is being led by smaller ensembles like City of London Symphony because we don't have that structure to manage mm -hmm. us. We manage the structure and, and we don't necessarily have all those processes in place, which could be a bad and a good thing. But it's just, it's, it's familiarity. I mean, composer like Hannah Peel, for example, A, how on earth do you categorize Hannah Peel? You probably don't. But, the, you know, people are starting to listen to Hannah Peel on Game of Thrones and, and things like that because she's written music for that. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't know Hannah Peel's album, uh, Mary Cassio, by the way, it's just phenomenal. I've, Electronica and brass meets brass bands. It's just the most stunning album ever. Go and listen to it right now. I'll, I'll put um, that on our stories. <laughs> um, and uh, but you know, if if people started programming Hannah Peel more, I mean, Six Music on, on BBC plays it all the time. The more that happens, the more that someone like her will become part of a kind of yeah. fame, if you like. Mm. Do you find that when you're programming things that are less well known, that the ticket? Aren't, don't sell as well or that you don't draw the same audiences you draw if you were to do a whole concert of Beethoven would that draw more than a whole concert of new music I think I think it, that in part depends where you are geographically mm. um, so we work with some venues outside London and I, I understand why, why they do this and you know, that they have to be quite safe in their programming because they've, they've got an audience and they will they will drive them away and they're not yet in a position where they they feel brave enough to sort of say, okay, well, let's look for a new audience. Mm -hmm. um, in London, I think it's slightly different. Quite often at CLS, we, we mark it not on, not on the repertoire, but on a theme or an experience. Um, yeah, if we put Bach down, we get a lot more people in. Um, mm -hmm. uh, that That's... That always seems to be the one that, that, that draws people to, to us. I don't know why we could become sort of, you know, popular for doing bark. It seems that, anyway, but um, um, <laughs> I'm not going to analyze it too much because I really like bark. Um, uh, but yeah, it's it's. I, I don't I don't feel certainly in London compelled to do the kind of okay overture concerto symphony. Otherwise, hmm. our audience will disappear. We we did um we did a, a tour around um, cathedrals in the UK all the way from down from Truro right up to, to Bradford and Sheffield in autumn 2019. Oh, I read about we that. Did, yeah, yeah, we did. We're mm. about eight cathedrals in total. We uh, it was a wonderful program uh, featuring uh, lots of Dubrinka Tabakovic's oh, yeah. music, mm. um, lots of Arvo Pert, um, and a bit of Dubrinka yeah. was the kind of main thing. And we invited people to sort of move around, follow the performance around each building and really explore the space and the architecture and the acoustics of our pair as well. So it was, mm. it was fantastic for that kind of stuff. Got sort of really well received. It was broadcast on Radio 3. It's part of the reason why we were one of the runners up for the RPS Royal Vermont Society Ensemble Awards. Um, last year, we, we won the Impact Award, by the way, just, just saying. Um, <laughs> but we didn't get big audiences. Um, yeah. We're really small audiences in, in some cases. Um, and I, at the time, I kind of thought, oh, this is awful. This is great. And if we did this in mm. London, we'd pack the place out. 
Um, but we didn't get great audiences there. And a couple of the, I felt a bit bad about, a bit down about this. And then I spoke to some of the directors of music at the cathedral because we worked with the cathedral choir in each place. And they turned around and they said, this is incredible. We've never had anything like this before. You need to come again and do it again and again and again because people will realize what an amazing thing it is. So like, okay, fine. If you if you change your programming and you you put a program on a contemporary female composers, are you going to fill the Royal Festival Hall? Actually, the Royal Festival is not a good example because Gillian probably would fill the Royal Festival Hall about doing that. <laughs> but are you going to fill, uh, you know, a, a big venue in, in a Guildford or a, mm. a, a Leeds Town Hall or whatever? I can say that. I'm probably... Um, the first time you do it, no, you are not. Might you do it the fifth time? Probably not. Might you do it yeah. the tenth time? Yeah, maybe, actually. Yeah. It takes time. You know, Marla wasn't popular when he was first around. Bach was a, a kind of, we're going back to Bach all the time. Bach was a, a kind of quite a good provincial yeah. church musician. Yeah. You know, it's, it's you know, history will, will, will do far better judging of, of who we are and what we, what we do and mm. the progress we make than, than we will. But in the meantime, it takes time. You know, we're not going to, we're not going to get thousands and thousands and thousands of people to listen to a new Cheryl Francis Hode commission at the moment, but yeah. we will in time if we keep doing it. Do you think sort of looking ahead to the future, do you think there are reasons to be cheerful with work that you're doing with CLS and with new music? Do you, do you feel that, you know, it's, it is like turning around an oil tanker, but do you think it's beginning to stick and there's, there's reasons to be hopeful that, that, you know, within the next 10, 20 years that, that this is just going to be more normalized and more appreciated. Yeah, I, I, I am yeah. cautiously optimistic um, for a number of reasons. I think that the last year, I mean, the last year has been an absolute <clears throat> tragedy on, on every possible level. And uh, the, the, the big sort of political shift in terms of the UK's relationship with its closest neighbours, Brexit, has been <clears throat> an absolute tragedy. Mm. Um, but never <clears throat> waste a crisis. Uh, and I think it's 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 actually it's guys like you that have sort of sat down and said, right, this now is the time to really push it um, and be an activist and do things that are going to affect change. And I can't pretend that every single one of my peers would agree with that. There is a cohort of leaders in classical music in the UK at the moment that want to see change, are prepared to sort of pick up the metaphorical baseball bat and you know, smash through a few places if they need to. Um, I think there are others that are desperate to go back to as was as soon as possible and just don't yeah. understand why all these people are so angry because we did that female composer three, female composer three years ago, didn't we? Um, so, yeah, and it's it changed sometimes, you know, there's, there's huge moments of change and you, you, you sort of think, well, this is the moment, everything's going to change. Actually, the change turns out to be sort of incremental in, in some ways. Um, but and also, you know, we, we've got uh, there's, there's a lot of right wing rhetoric about yeah. it at the moment. Um, but sometimes during this, but if you think back to the 80s, um, obviously you two cannot <laughs> think back to the 80s because you were <laughs> born. I can. Okay, so in in the early 80s, early 80s was the kind of high yeah. point of Thatcherism. We was going around smashing the unions. We had three million people on the dole queue. Liverpool was about to be abandoned, basically, as a city. Um, you know, some yeah. really appalling things. So what, what happened with the kind of the, the, the aggressive elements of society 
that's the time when you alternative comedy really bloomed and out of alternative comedy came what has been what what I refer to would have referred to at the time as, as political correctness. I think the far better term is polite consensus. But a lot of that sort of comedy, which eventually became mainstream and said, you cannot use racial slurs and misogynistic slurs in, in light entertainment anymore. It is totally unacceptable. And that was a huge shift. If you look back at TV in the 70s and people like Bernard Manning and, and, and all that sort of stuff, this massive shift occurred right when things were kind of being pushed in, in extreme directions in, in what well, I would argue sensible progressive direction on, on the left and more extreme directions on the right. Um, so I, I, all of those things can be caused for optimism, but I think the fact that a lot of people are standing up and saying, okay, it's no longer good enough to use a female composer and, or a black soloist. You have to change not everything you do, but you have to change the structure in which you're doing it. And I think part mm -hmm. of that is, as it goes back to sort of, you know, engaging with artists, having the widest possible talent pool as possible. When you, when you engage with artists from underrepresented backgrounds, find out what they want to do. Don't get them to meet your yeah. structures. But I, it, is, I it, is, it is, sorry, Paddy, I just interrupted you. No, 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 you go. You've got far more That is not true because you'll be managing orchestras in 20 years now and I'll be retired, I hope. Um, um, yeah, it's, yeah, I, I've totally forgot my train of thought now. Whatever you were going to say is more interesting. Go ahead. Well, I, I, I was just going to say, I remember a time um, about just kind of smashing down barriers. I remember a time with my singing teacher, and I will never name them, um, many years ago. Um, back when I, I was probably about 15 or 16 and I was singing a song from I think it was it yeah. was The King and I or something like that and she she said um, that a lot of places are very apprehensive about putting it on because you have to have a cast yeah. of people from that background but she she does and she was saying this to me mm. um, she she doesn't understand what's wrong with just yeah. putting a bit of that makeup on and getting back out. And 15-year-old, 16-year-old Ellie's response was just like, I know, right? I can't believe it. It's bizarre. Political correctness gone mad. And obviously, I kind of, it hadn't really occurred to me yeah. that, that, that that was, one, a really <laughs> rubbish response. Two, a really appalling thing for them to say in the first place. And three, something that people were thinking and I just remember now, if it was me, I would have lost my bananas. I would have gone absolutely mental. Um, but I think it's a fear that people don't want to change things. As we did say, people in classical music, we're so stubborn and we're so used to a certain way of life that to disrupt the balance would be to completely change the way people perceive classical music. But I don't think that's a bad thing at all. No, it's, it's, I think it's not. I mean, do. King and I, wow, that's a, a film that has not stood the no. test of time very well. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's I, you know, I, 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 we will, there will still be a place for big concert halls in 20 years' time. Uh, yeah. But, you know, change, change has to come. I think change is coming. It will make for a better place for everybody. The, the point about diversity and inclusion in a sector like classical music is it makes life better for people like me and people like Ben as well as yeah. people yeah. like you Ali 
And, you know, yeah. it is it is not about me giving up mm. something. It is about me saying there is a better way to do things that, that, that suits everybody, um, including me. You know, I, I will be in a happier, friendlier, less mm. ego-driven work environment. That, that's, no. that's not a bad thing. You know, all the, all the sort of macho stuff about knowing more about Mozart catalogue numbers or, you know, sort of, you know, telling, you know, war stories of when a conductor threw his, you know, sort of, you know, toys out of the pram and, you know, all that sort of stuff. If we get rid of that, oh, thank goodness. Is your life yeah. just not a bit better? And it's, you know, that's that the reason. I no, that. I agree. And I think, anyway. uh, you know, from, from my perspective, having, you know, this the last sort of, what, two months of doing this podcast, like, I, I'm not very good at... Uh, finding music unless I'm performing it, you know, it's sort of having to discuss. So sort of force mm. is wrong, but, but sort of knowing, hey, every week we've we've got to, you know, we've got we're presenting a new composer. Um, as a result of that, you know, I my, you know, the playlists on my on my Apple Music are, are now vastly different, and the pieces that I go to now uh, are might have once been Tchaikovsky, and now might be. Margaret Owen or somebody else, whatever it is, and I, I really like that because it, it it just proves the point, doesn't it? That that the only reason that that I didn't know those people before was because I wasn't looking hard enough, and and it, it you know I think you just very quickly realise that you don't you don't need to sit there with your arms folded going, well, I wonder if this is going to be any good because you realise that actually they are they're really bloody good. Um, and the reason why they're yeah. not known is not yeah. because they're not really bloody good. And maybe there are lots of people that we know yeah. and they're not very good. Um, you know, and, and, and I think it, yeah. it's just all of that. Okay, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question, a really mean question. Who, it, 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 who are the three most overrated composers in the inverted commas? Oh, oh, okay. Come on, oh, both I, of I you. Could, I'll happily one. go off on this one. Yeah, because I need to think about this. Ben, do you want me to go first? Oh, you've got yours ready, have you, Ali? Okay, yeah, go on then. Yeah. I've got mine ready. <laughs> um, oh, I'm, I actually have four. Um, I This is completely just my personal preference. I'm very much into my kind of Shostakovich and Dring and less mm. traditional tonal stuff. So personally, for me, I'm going to oh. go with Mahler, Beethoven, sorry, Mahler, Beethoven and Mozart. Done. I'm sorry, I said it. <laughs> Marla Beethoven and Mozart. Okay, it's, uh, yeah. Ben. If you love Marla, read his letters. Yeah. You won't anymore. Um, um, okay, yeah. Ben. Go. Three composers Wagner. who were overrated. Um. Um. Oh, Wagner. Just because I just can't be dealing with all that. I just I'm not really an opera person anyway. Um, that's that's really lazy of me. Um, I agree with Ellie Mozart because the only thing I actually like of his like his choral music and and that's 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 also quite lazy and then i can i can i just can i just room 101 the english choral tradition <laughs> the the fan fan um fanatical english choral tradition um loyalists i'm gonna go with that's really obfuscated yeah. okay i'm not pinning I'll, my I'll let you to any specific I'll last let you year i'm never gonna get a job in the choral industry now because i basically just said i don't like any of them um, but just that. <laughs> my three for the record. Yes, Philip Glass. Yes, uh, because basically every time I listen to Philip Glass, I think, why yeah. isn't this Steve Wright? Uh, Bruckner, yeah, because it's just dull. Uh, and uh, Mozart, <laughs> because he's not as good as Haydn. 
And you know that sort of trope that everyone says, oh, you won't really understand Mozart's any rather than he was when he died. That's true, because what you don't understand is he's not as good as Haydn. Anyway, we're, we're, we're talking about all the composers that this podcast no. is not supposed to talk about. But, but luckily, all the composers we want yeah. to get rid of to are fair, all one of the male. That Ellie and I did discuss yeah. when we first started thinking about this podcast was, do we dare to do a couple of episodes where we, where we dare to question the authority of certain members of the canon? So actually, this, this little spiel we've just spoken about now is actually kind of that is, we, we, we were thinking of doing that at some point. Um, and I think actually, you know, fundamentally, I think what's more important is, is obviously us talking about the composers that we don't know so well. But actually, it's quite nice sometimes to go, do you know what? I really don't get this because I just don't, you know. Do you know what? It's not, it's not a problem that no. other art forms have. Yeah. Literature, visual art, theatre doesn't have any problem with looking at something that's historically lauded and going, it's not actually that good. In three contemporary eyes. No, that's very, it's very just classical music. It's weird, and it's that's so, so much of it. Like the, it's even to the point of what people wear. You know, men stopped wearing white tie for evening dress post World War Two, and yet you you go to a most classical music concert in the UK, and that's what they wear. And you just think, well, no one in the audience is wearing that. So it's not now. It's become sort of sort of period costume yeah. in a weird way. And, you know, in all fairness, when these pieces were being written and they were being performed, they were anchored in their time. Okay, so I'm going to, I'm going to say something potentially controversial on. on this podcast now. I don't like white time tales either. The danger is if you get rid of them, yeah, that's, that's what you do. Because it, it is yeah. a show. It categorically yeah. is a show. I used to work at the Roundhouse before I came to City of London to Bedford in Camden, and everything there was referred to as a show. And you, you were made to think about lighting and set dressing and all of those things as much as you were about what yeah. actually went on, on the stage. And it was because it was really important. It's like, what are they going to wear? It's not a question of not wearing white tie and tails. Okay, if you're not wearing white tie tails, um, and of course that is a, a dress code which is only specific for, for men because there isn't a female equivalent, um, yeah. at least not no. you know, sort of since World War II. Um, what it's, it's not a question of saying, oh, well, we'll just wear just wear all black. I mean, at City London Symphony, generally just just wear all black. But we now think about what we are doing in our performance. What, how are we going to light it, or how we're going to present it? How we're going to move around the mm. space? We're going to use the space. If all you're doing is saying, oh, we've got rid of it, so it's fine. No, it's not fine. All the other structures yeah. are still the same. Yeah. You know, it's it's just. So in a, in, a, in a way, if you all you're going to do is not wear white tie and tails, I'd rather you just kept them yeah. on because it really makes no difference. And I'd rather you just I look agree. like a bunch of pricks, yeah. frankly, because it makes me look better. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it makes it very easy, white tie and tails. It makes it very easy with certain big symphony orchestras to realise that, well, string sections might be majority female. Not on the front desk yeah, so that's much. Very true. I wonder why that is. That's very true. Very true. Yeah, exactly. Um so yeah, I, I but yeah, it is it is categorically a show. It always should be a show. If all you think yeah. about is what we're going to about the whole experience. No. Yeah, yeah, totally. Thank yeah. you so much for chatting with us. Hey, it's been fun. We have a, I think I we could, have a limit. We're just fifty-nine, forever. fifty-nine, aren't we? On this, so um, we're going to have to wrap it up. <laughs> oh, I I've only just gone back in my notes and seen the time. Oops. Um, so, thank, <laughs> thank you. Thank you so so much for joining us, Matthew. Pleasure. We've absolutely loved having Lovely you. Lovely to talk to you both. And I, I meant what I said. You know, it's not going to be me managing orchestras in twenty years' time or performing on stage. It's you guys. So, you know. Thank you. Get on it. That means a lot keep, for keep, both of us. Keep the baseball bat handy. Smash, some, smash the windows in.
I mean, metaphorically. <laughs> metaphorically. I've got a hockey stick, is that all right? Yeah, oh, that'll do. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, Matthew. Thank you. I hope that you get back to doing un-COVID time performances yes. soon and that you get to that performance of Jacob Collier. I hope so too, yes. Yeah. And we'll come and see you in London. Please do. Please Where do. We'll come and see you. Thanks, Matthew. Thank you so much, Matthew. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to us having an amazing chat with Matthew Swan, the chief executive of the City of London, Estonia. And what a man. It's like uh, he's I, just, I just broken all the I barriers like how himself. Angry I was he is scared. about all of these issues. It's great. And so he should be. It's so great from the perspective of a black female that there is yeah. a white male in his privileged, kind of powerful position who's just gone stop everyone yeah, being so I was stupid li- and blind. I was and literally just thinking exactly it. the same thing. It's so that's what we need. Because I think, you know, it's it's almost expected that we hear we hear these these arguments made by people of colour and by female voices and queer voices. And it's so refreshing to see somebody who you would who who if you were to judge based on appearance alone, you know, you'd expect to just be upholding the old patriarchal structures to actually come out the blocks and I think just for to, uh, to the first swear words on the patriarchy pod yeah this is, not, this is not a family show anymore um no you know <laughs> I mean but like but that's great because it, it, it it's not life or death but the thing is is that it, these are important issues and he's you know he's right to be angry and I think it's that kind of passion that that means that somebody in his position of power is, is that that combination is electric because it means that you're you're only going to get good results from that you're only going to get these these glass ceilings and these barriers being smashed to pieces you know what a great man exactly oh what a yeah, great man very good what a great chat as well so, so, thank you guys take care everyone we will see you on Easter Monday bye.